Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 5 through 33. You'll remember from our study of the first four verses of this chapter, of chapter 11, that the focus of this chapter is to warn the Corinthians against deception and how they can keep from being deceived. So in verses 1 through 4, we saw that to be presented in purity to Christ as the promised bride, we need to be sincerely devoted to Christ. Purity is an antidote to deception. In our portion for today, chapter 11, verses 5 through 33, the warning against deception is to guard against false apostles and false gospel workers. And as we read, you'll see that Paul also defends himself and lists the sufferings he has endured for the sake of the gospel. So let's read. I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers." I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily 
the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretaeus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Long passage, but this morning we're going to focus particularly on verses 12 through 15. I'll make a few points about all the other verses and then we'll consider those verses 12 through 15 in a little bit more detail. Now, Paul says so many different things about what he has undergone, and I'm not going into detail on all that. Just go back and read this list. It is remarkable what Paul underwent, what he went through to be able to live for the Lord, to minister for the Lord. And we'll come back and later on I'll, I'll make reference to the suffering that he endures because of the call on his life. But right, right here in the first part of this passage, Paul refers in verse 7 to preaching the gospel to the Corinthians free of charge. And what he means by that is that he didn't receive an honorarium or a wage or other compensatory gift in exchange for his service, his preaching and his teaching. The reason he refers to this to the fact that he's not charging them anything, is because there were other preachers and teachers who were not only charging fees for their services, but also defining the value of their service by the amount that they charged. For those who were profiting financially from the ministry of the gospel message, a high fee was meant to show that their message and they themselves were very valuable. And a low fee or no fee implied that the message and or the messenger were not important or valuable. So they were ascribing value based on how much they were charging. So the fact that Paul was serving for free in Corinth was viewed by some as a disqualification of him as an apostle or even a good speaker. They were like, oh, well, he can't, he can't speak very well. That's why he's not charging anything. You know? So he was being put down. He was being criticized by at least some in this church. And that's why he even makes this reference. Now, you'll remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when we were studying the book of 1 Corinthians, that Paul makes it clear that ministers of the gospel can and should be supported by those they minister to. He states in that passage that ministers may reap a material harvest for the spiritual seed that they sow. So in whichever ways that we're going about and we're expecting to have a material harvest for the spiritual seed, that is a biblical principle and it applies. In that passage, he refers to the provision for the priests in the Old Testament to say that those who serve in the temple should get their food from the temple. But, Paul says there that he does not make use of these privileges or rights. Instead, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 17 through 18, Paul wrote this to the same people that he's addressing now in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And there he said, if I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? 
just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Paul didn't want anything to get in the way of the people receiving the gospel and the people in Corinth. Paul didn't want anyone in Corinth to feel that he was preaching to them for financial gain. He wanted them to pay attention to the gospel, to the right Jesus, the right spirit, and the right gospel. He wanted the people to pay attention to the gospel and not to him. So, that's one of the points to keep in mind as you have this context for why he's saying these things. But as you read verses 16 through 33, remember all these things that he's saying about how he suffered, that it is because Paul feels like he has been forced to defend his apostleship that he boasts about what he has done. And really what he's doing is he's letting them know that he is doing what the Lord called him to do. When Paul was called by the Lord to go to the Gentiles, when we read about that in Acts 9 and on the road to Damascus and when God confronts Paul or Saul at the time and you know, as he's commonly known at that time, when, he, when the Lord confronts him and then when he sends Ananias to speak to, to Saul, to Paul, he, the Lord told Paul that he would suffer. He said, I want you to go and tell Paul how much he has to suffer for me. I've mentioned this before. What a great call of God, right? I want you for my ministry. I want you to serve me. Let me tell you how much you're going to suffer for me. And sure enough, that's the list that Paul goes through. He says, listen to my list. This is what has happened because the Lord called me and he said, you're going to suffer for me. And so when Paul boasts of his sufferings, it's completely unlike others. Unlike others, Paul doesn't boast of the churches he has planted, the miracles. The Bible says even unusual miracles took place through the ministry of Paul. He doesn't talk about any of that. He doesn't talk about the training that he has had in the Word of God and the discipleship that he's in, you know, uh, giving to young men and others. And He doesn't speak of any of his qualifications. Paul speaks of his weaknesses. Why? Because the Lord's strength is evident in Paul's weaknesses. Whatever we think we're incapable of, not so great at, not so strong at, we don't say, oh, I can't do it. I'm not good. I'm not able. We say, Lord, in the midst of my weakness, let your strength be manifest. And when the strength of the Lord is manifest, that's what makes the difference. That's what helps to convince others that it's not us at all. It is the Lord. And we'll come back to this in more detail next week when we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, this idea of strength and weakness. For now, let's focus on verses 12 to 15. Even as Paul defends his calling and his ministry, notice in verses 12 through 15, how he refers to the false apostles and the deceitful workers of the Gospels. He says they are masquerading as apostles of Christ. They are pretending. They are masquerading as servants of righteousness. They are pretending to be something that they are not. Just as the devil pretends to be something that he is not. 
And he says, those who attempt to deceive others are influenced by or controlled by the devil who masquerades as an angel of light. Which means that just as we considered when we went through verses 1 through 4, when we went through those verses, we said our goal is not to find out about the false Jesus and the false spirit or the false gospel. Instead, we focus on what is true. Similarly, our goal here is not to learn all about the false apostles or the devil or the false you know, gospel workers. What did they do? What did they say? What were their heresies? How did they behave? Really unimportant. Because our focus is to say what is the truth? What is right? We seek to avoid deception by knowing the light which allows us to avoid the darkness. You think things are bad? You think something is not going well? You think somebody's not doing something right? Don't worry about the darkness. You continue to know and learn and live in the light. You avoid deception by knowing the light which will naturally help you to avoid the darkness. And you live knowing righteousness, which will naturally allow you to avoid unrighteousness. So, the first thing that we've got to look at is light versus darkness. The Bible uses light and darkness as metaphors for good and evil. You'll find this kind of reference in other religions and philosophies, and you'll find you know, that light is commonly associated with what is pure and known, light. You know, it's in the light. We'll hear those expressions. Darkness is associated with impurity and deception. Evil thrives under the cover of darkness. It was dark in the city, you know, and you think of all the superheroes that come to. It's always the evil is being done in the darkness. But light reveals the truth. In the Bible, light represents God's truth, God's unchanging nature, and God's salvation. Listen to these verses. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from God, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. No variation, no shadow due to change. He is pure light all the time, and just consistent, bright, 1 John 1 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, we, we, we already went through this passage a little a few weeks ago. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then in John chapter 12, verse 46, it says, I have come into the world, Jesus speaks of himself, as I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. When we are in the light, we are in fellowship with Christ and the body of Christ, the church. We are in fellowship in the way that we should be. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 John 1.7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 2 verses 9 through 10 says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. All these references to light and living in the light and God being light, it is bringing us to references like Psalm 119 verse 105 which tells us that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Psalm 119 which uh, verse 130 that tells us that the unfolding of God's words gives light. It just illumines the way. How many times in your daily lives have you said, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know what will happen. It's all unclear, dark. But what do you need in the midst of that situation? Light, clarity, the way to be made clear and firm before you. When you're stumbling in the darkness, what do you want? You want some light. And the Bible is telling us that this is what the Lord is doing for us. So when all of that is true, and the Bible is telling us that God who is light longs for us to know him and to apply his word, know his word and apply his word so that we may be in the light and therefore be close to him who is light. If we are seeking that light that we will naturally turn away from darkness, if all of that is happening, what will the devil do to come to deceive you? Does he come with darkness? No. He comes masquerading as an angel of light. Why would the devil come to you and say, I want to give you darkness? If light is so appealing, if light is giving you clarity, if light gives you the means by which you can move forward, why would you listen to somebody coming to you and saying, no, no, no let me tell you about darkness. So the, so the angel of light the, that is that we think is the angel of light, is the devil masquerading in order to lead us astray. That's what Paul is warning against. He's saying here are people in the church, false apostles, false gospel workers, false believers, he says. People in the church. He's not talking about people outside the church. He's not talking about some group somewhere else that you can point to. He's saying in the church there will be this kind of attempt at deception. And you need to be discerning. You need to understand that this is what will happen. Let me keep going because I want to come back to uh, the point of application for us. Just as the word of God points us to the light, it also points us to righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out, inspired by God and profitable, useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for rebuking and for training in righteousness. You see, righteousness is right standing before God according to God's standards, not our standards. 
It's not judging our own righteousness based on the law. I'm keeping the law. I must be righteous. You know, in fact, we were reminded of that even, this, even earlier. It is not because we kept the law that we can say, according to that standard, I am righteous. And it certainly is not defining our own self-righteousness based on our works. So not, not, not even the objective or you know, other standard of the law, but not even our standard of ourselves. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We don't compare ourselves to others and we don't compare ourselves to ourselves. We don't say, I'm doing pretty well. I'm a good person. I deserve to be seen as holy, righteous, pure, you know, whatever it may be. So righteousness doesn't come because we are able to declare it of ourselves. Righteousness is the grace-filled, the gracious restoration to the Lord of our, from, of, from where we are in our sin and in our darkness. It is the Lord's restoration to bring us in right standing with him. By faith that we would come and be joined to him in right standing. That we are rightly positioned before the Lord. That we are having access to the throne of grace. That we are then equipped and empowered by the Lord to do righteous acts that he has commanded. I said at the beginning of the sermon that chapter 11 verses 1 to 4 describes us as the pure bride of Christ. In Revelation chapter 19 verses 7 through 8 it affirms our identity as that bride and then describes the characteristics of the bride in this way. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. We talked about this, that we would prepare, that we would be ready, that we would understand what it means to be promised to the Lord and therefore ready, made ready to be presented to the Lord. But here it continues to say, and to her, who? The bride of Christ. And to her, which means us, all of us collectively in the body of Christ, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. If we think that we can put on fine linen and bright, you know, be bright because of the detergents that we use, our spiritual detergents, I don't mean Tide. I mean, if we think that our righteous acts and what we will go through will make us look bright, we've got it wrong. We need to be arrayed. We need to choose to put on the righteousness of the Lord that covers us so that when people see us, they don't see us, they see the Lord. They see what he has done. They are able to say, truly the Lord is good, not this person is good. And so when we are arrayed in that way, what do these righteous acts look like? Titus chapter 2 verse 12 teaches us that because we've been made the righteousness of God, we deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and choose to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present age. So here's the thing. I'm going through these points fairly quickly, but just what I want to make clear is that instead of trying to understand what is not to be done, we always need to focus on what is to be done. So in this case, light and righteousness. How do we understand the light of God? 
How should we live in that light? How should we understand the righteousness of God? How should we live in that righteousness? But it leads us to this point of application that in all these truths that the Bible teaches us and speaks to us, we have to apply the word of God by discerning the spirits to avoid deception. Because that's what Paul is telling the people in Corinth. He says, look, there will be these people, these, these false apostles, false gospel workers, false believers, and they will masquerade as servants of righteousness. They will pretend to be putting on these fine linens that look pretty bright. But you've got to be discerning. Don't worry about what will happen to them. The Lord will take care of that. It's not for you to figure out, oh, these people, are, they are false, you know, let me go after them. No, no, no. He says their end will be, you know, they will have an end that deserves their actions. That's all up to the Lord. You, on the other hand, need to be discerning. You need to be guarding against deception because you are living in discernment, sharpening your discernment, paying attention to what the Lord will do. So in the days that we have on this earth, until our days on earth are coming to an end, or until the end of time when Jesus returns, while we live on this earth, in the time that we are promised to the Lord, we have to discern the spirits to avoid deception. Just as purity is an antidote to deception, discernment is an antidote to deception. And how does that happen? When, when we were studying about spiritual gifts, we saw that one of the distinct spiritual gifts is the discerning of spirits. That we would be able to say, this is of the Lord and this isn't. That's not something that comes to us naturally. That's not something that we can just simply say, oh yeah, 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 I have this checklist, right? I have these 10 items, and if I can tick off seven items on that list, must be God. If I can tick off, you know, seven items, that, or if I cannot tick off those, then must be the devil. It, it's not that's that kind of a list that the Lord gives us. It, you know, there is no single verse that says these are the specific things to look for. But what does he say? He says, you've got to rely on me. You've got to listen to me. What looks like something good in one situation may not be, but what looks similar in another situation may be of the Lord. How will you discern? You've got to be dependent on the Lord. You can't rely on your senses. You certainly can't rely on your physical senses. Hey, they look pretty good. They sound pretty good. You certainly can't do just what you think is your wisdom and apply that, your experience. Oh, I've seen this plenty of times. But rather, every single time, you would say, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, tell me, show me, guide me, direct me. I'm dependent on you. I need to discern what is right and what is wrong. I can't just go thinking that this is light, thinking that this is righteousness, thinking that everything is okay. I have to discern. I have to examine, as we've talked about this before, I have to examine what is being said according to the word of God. Does it line up with the word of God? I have to examine what is being done according to who Jesus is, his character, his nature, his command, his, his name. I have to evaluate it in that respect. I have to evaluate what is going on according to the gospel message. That there is no salvation in anything else or in any other person other than the Lord Jesus. 
If I'm hearing anything else other than that, I've got to question it. I've got to discern what is going on. And when we stand in that way, when we are alert in that way, when we are paying attention to what the Lord would speak to us, the Lord is faithful. We can't, you know, sometimes we say, oh, I don't know. Even if, I, if I'm alert, even if I'm discerning, even if I say this, what if I, what if I hear something wrong? Trust the Lord. If you're asking the Lord, help me to discern what is right and wrong, do you think he's going to deceive you? Do you think he's going to just go to, you know, give you a test, you know, a, a, a false message just to see, you know? He, he will answer your prayer and he will tell you, this is right, this is wrong. And we are learning to attune ourselves to the Lord Jesus, to pay attention to the Holy Spirit so that we can say, Lord God, I thank you for the way, let me walk in it. This morning, you know, when we read through these verses and we see what Paul is going through and everything that he's experiencing, I want to remind you that he, in the middle of all of these things, he says, one of my greatest burdens is that I'm concerned about you. He doesn't, he describes beatings and shipwrecks and all the things, but in the middle of all of that, he says, I am, the more importantly, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about your walk in the Lord. I'm concerned whether you are true to the call of the Lord. That was his bigger concern. This morning, I want to encourage you that we would be concerned for one another, that we would, as a church, who are part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, say, is my brother, is my sister living in the light? Is my brother, is my sister living according to righteousness? Is my brother, is my sister manifesting and obeying the Lord so as to live out acts of righteousness? Oh, if so, wonderful. Let me keep encouraging them. Let me stand with them. If I don't think that's happening or if there's any concern, I don't need to go and do anything to judge or to confront or to do anything else. I need to pray. I need to go to the Lord. I need to ask for discernment. I need to say, Lord God, how can we be built up as a church? Our goal as a church is not to do anything else other than to walk in these ways of the Lord so that we will be discerning of the deception that will come. Not may, will. So many things around you. So many things. In the middle of it all, that we would say, Lord, I know you. I know what you have done for me. And I can trust you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And Lord, when we turn to you, Lord, when we look to you, you give us your Holy Spirit by which, by whom we're able to discern the spirits. Lord, you give us your Holy Spirit so that we will know your word because your Holy Spirit teaches us. And your word brings us to light or gives us the light. Your word lets us know what is righteous, what is holy, what is consecrated, what is pure, what is, Lord, our sincere devotion. Your word allows us, Lord, to live out, to unfold this path of righteousness before us. Lord God, we thank you for that. Father, we as a church, we want to commit to you. Lord, we're coming into the last quarter of this year, coming up soon to the last quarter of this year. Lord God, we don't want to just go through and live our lives aimlessly. We want to press in. We want to see the things of the Lord done. We want to see the kingdom of God advance. Lord, we want to see your will done 
and your purpose is fulfilled so that the world may know that you are God. Build us up, Lord. Cause us as a church to be founded firm, to be rooted in these truths that we are learning, to apply these truths so that we will be discerning and that, Lord, to keep ourselves, to guard ourselves against the deception that can come. Father, we thank you that you give us the warning that you don't just leave us and then the wolves come, but rather you warn us and you tell us, look for these things, understand these things, pay attention to these things. I thank you, Lord, that when we do, you are faithful, you are true, you are good. Lord, we can trust you. Come, Lord Jesus, do this work in our midst and as for our church collectively, for the body of Christ, Lord, all over globally, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.